1: Hello and welcome to The Intelligence on Economist Radio. I'm your host, Jason Palmer. Every weekday, we provide a fresh perspective on the events shaping your world. Mobile phones are, of course, not just for making calls. In the developing world, they can represent someone's first link to the formal financial system. But along with the benefits of mobile banking come the risks of fraud and exploitation. And fashion houses pump out an abundance of pricey clothes, a new line available every six months. But what about the stuff that doesn't sell? Incinerating it all turned out to be pretty bad PR, so high-end brands are having to come up with other ideas. First up, though. Last night, President Donald Trump delivered his fourth State of the Union Address. It was full of dramatic flourishes and actions seemingly precision-engineered to rankle Democrats.
2: The State of the Union Address is one of the big set pieces of American politics. John Prideau is our United States editor. It once drew a vast TV audience live. The audience is not so big now, but it's still a very good opportunity for the president to address the nation uninterrupted. If you go back to previous State of the Unions, what presidents have often tried to do is use them to announce policy initiatives, which would then be followed through later on. There was less of that in President Trump's State of the Union. There was a lot of stuff about how fantastically the country was doing.
3: Jobs are booming. Incomes are soaring. Poverty is plummeting.
2: You know, he talked about the government having shattered the mentality of American decline.
3: And our country is thriving and highly respected again.
2: And it was really a description of America that was flourishing and flourishing entirely thanks to the good work of the Trump administration.
1: But there wasn't just that. There was a, a great deal of, of, of partisan rancor as well.
2: Yes, it feels like partisan rancor in America isn't really news. But you're right, there was even more than there usually is. Nancy Pelosi, the Speaker of the House, ripped up President Trump's speech. Part of the partisan rancor, I think, was a response to the sorts of people President Trump had invited into the audience and called out. So that's a standard part of um, a State of the Union speech. The President gets to put... People he's invited up in the gallery, and we'll call them out along the way. And typically, Congress applauds them because they, you know, great upstanding patriotic Americans who've who've done brave things. There were a fair few of those sorts of folks last night. But President Trump also decided to honour Rush Limbaugh, the um, controversial, I'll say, American talk radio host, who's been diagnosed with an advanced lung cancer. Now. Rush Limbaugh, if you're a Democrat, is somebody who has, you know, made American politics considerably worse, more partisan and spent decades, you know, sort of peddling um, falsehoods and really whipping up partisan animus. And to announce that he's getting the Presidential Medal of Freedom um, in a State of the Union address, as President Trump did last night, it's not the sort of thing that is going to please Democrats.
1: Well, I mean, aside from the, that, that sort of theatrics, though, there, there was one notable guest there in the form of Juan Guaido, the, the opposition leader from Venezuela. What, what do you make of his presence?
2: Yes, having Juan Guaido, there was both a way to show solidarity with Venezuela and also, I think, to burnish President Trump's foreign policy credentials.
3: Joining us in the gallery is the true and legitimate president of Venezuela, Juan Guaido. <laughs> Mr. President, please take this message back to your
2: also won't have gone down terribly in Florida, where there's a large emigre community that backs the opposition leader. But there was also a second sort of domestic politics element to that. When President Trump introduced Juan Guaido, he made a point of underlining how socialism destroys countries. And it's not a huge stretch to think that his speechwriters might have been thinking about Bernie Sanders' performance in Iowa and and be sort of limbering up uh, to possibly take him on in November. The the part with Juan Guaido went straight on to a riff about socialism in healthcare being a disaster. And so if part of the purpose of the speech
1: is essentially to to pat himself on the back uh, and the other part is essentially laying out a case for for Trump 2020, how do you think he did on that latter score?
2: I think he laid out a pretty strong case. I mean, if you didn't know anything else about American politics, if you hadn't been following the Trump administration for the past few years, uh, you know, you took all the kind of chaos and the insults and the norm-breaking and the impeachment stuff, which didn't get a mention at all. You know, there was no mention of Ukraine. If you take all that out, then he does have a good story to tell. You know, America is enjoying a good moment in the sense that its economy is growing at a steady clip. Unemployment's really low, lowest it's been for half a century. You know, violent crime is low. Blue-collar wages are growing fast. Many of those things were true in 2016 um, when the Trump-Hillary Clinton election was going on. Um, But at that point, Donald Trump managed to persuade enough people that America was in a sort of terminal tailspin. What we've had is that those trends broadly have continued through his presidency. And he's now able to say, you know, America has made this fantastic comeback, and it's all thanks to me. And I think if you're sort of inclined to give him the benefit of the doubt— He has a good story to tell. It's obviously not entirely thanks to policies that the White House has pushed. But still, I think he's going to be a formidable opponent for whichever Democrat gets the nomination in November.
1: And I suppose he'll be riding high on the questions surrounding that with the mess going on in Iowa.
2: Yes, I think he's had fun with that. I mean, while Democrats were waiting for the result, President Trump declared himself the winner of Iowa. I mean, I think ultimately that will be forgotten after a few news cycles, as in the mess of the vote count and the delay in getting the results out. But what the Iowa result points to is a fairly divided Democratic field. That could mean a long primary, maybe even the contested convention, which political journalists dream about. Um, And the longer the primary goes on, you have to say, probably the worse it is for the Democrats, because President Trump will get to you know, go around campaigning in swing states while they're all trying to knock lumps out of each other.
1: I suppose adding to Mr. Trump's high spirits is the seemingly inevitable fact that he will be exonerated in his impeachment trial by the Senate today.
2: Yes, he's very likely to be exonerated by the Senate later today. And I think two things follow from that. Thing one is that the Republican Party is really more united behind Donald Trump than it's been at any point during his presidency. And if you think back to 2016 and some of the protests from some relatively high-ranking Republicans, even though it's in the Senate, that's quite a remarkable thing. You know, Donald Trump has really won his tussle with the Republican Party, and they've fully lined up behind him. And the second thing, which follows from the first, is that President Trump now seems sort of entirely unconstrained uh, by his party, which I don't think is going to consider anything that he does from here on in to be beyond the pale. And so that has a very real effect on uh, potentially on how America is governed. So in effect, Mr. Trump
1: is riding high and makes a, a pretty good case for himself. And yet there was this partisan rancor, this absolutely obvious divide within the House. Do you think that that's a, a now fixed feature of American politics? Do you see a way out of this? Uh, we, we ask ourselves all the time, you know, how much of the Trump administration is a blip and how much is a norms to get broken and stay that way? The State of the Union used to be a fairly sober, unifying affair. When do you see it coming back to that?
2: It did used to be a fairly sober, unifying affair. I don't think it's going to go back there any time soon, even if President Trump suddenly disappeared from the scene. And the reason for that is that the parties are both more ideologically unified than they used to be, and they're further apart than they used to be. So it's really hard to find members of Congress on one side who agree with members on the other side on almost anything. Those who watch Barack Obama's presidency will remember that during one of his State of the Union speeches, a Republican congressman stood up and the shouted out, you I'm lie. Proposing would not apply to those who are here illegal. It's not true. And, and that was treated as a real kind of breach of norms and congressional etiquette at the time now seems almost sort of quaint, really. Um, So I think we are set on this path, and it's really hard to see how you go back to something more collegial in American politics. John, thank you very much for joining us. Thanks, Jason.
1: Over the past decade, mobile phone usage in the developing world has been steadily climbing. More than 8 out of every 10 adults in those markets now own a phone. That has led to a financial revolution. Millions of customers with no prior banking history can arrange money transfers, microloans, and bill payments using just a basic phone. The benefits seem pretty clear cut, but concerns are mounting about the ways these new customers can be exploited.
3: Those who seek to improve what's called financial inclusion, that is bringing poor people into formal financial services, see the mobile phone as a kind of magic weapon.
1: Simon Long is deputy digital editor for The Economist.
3: It has vastly expanded the reach of financial services, but all the cheerleading for the mobile phone as a vehicle for financial inclusion has tended to pipe down a little just recently as people begin to realize some of the downsides.
1: Well, what's the nature of the downsides?
3: They're twofold, really. One that has come up in some African countries, in particular, notably Kenya, is the idea that in some cases it's become too easy for people to borrow money and they have borrowed unwisely and used the money unwisely. And the classic example of this is an outbreak of young people spending far too much on online gambling sites.
2: For a chance to win big, SMS chasers to 29888 to
0: register and put your money on your team.
3: And getting into financial trouble with long-lasting effects. The amounts of money they borrowed were very small, but they would default on a payment to a gambling company and would end up in the bad books of a credit register and so conceivably would be barred from borrowing for years or possibly a lifetime.
1: And the other risk?
3: The other risk is that it lays people open to fraud. Uh, We all know that our online experience is colored by attempts to take money off us, whether it's on our computers or our mobile phones. For poor people, that is a new experience in many cases. They're often unfamiliar both with the online world and, of course, with formal financial experience. So they tend to be vulnerable to this, particularly given that many of them will be using a simple old-style feature phone, as it's called, secured by nothing more than a PIN number.
1: And what kinds of fraud are these phone users falling victim to?
3: Many of these forms of fraud are very basic. There's what's called a reverse money scam, where you get a message on your phone saying, I'm terribly sorry, I deposited money in your account by mistake. Can I have it back? Or there are attempts to register a SIM card with your phone number so that people might have your phone number and also have access to your mobile money account. There are all sorts of fairly crude frauds.
1: I mean, to a degree, that sounds like a, a problem of familiarity. Will, will this not follow a pattern here as it has elsewhere in the world where people become more wise to these fraud attempts the more they're exposed to them?
3: They will, though, of course, there's another issue here, which is that all of this relies to a certain extent on breaching the privacy of the poor. And yet, of course, many of the poor, like many people in well-off countries, have already simply given away that data which gives financial apps the ability to sell you products which are particularly suited to you, but also gives them the ability to prey on you in certain ways. If you're in a poor country, people who have access to your payment data might see just the moment when a poor person is most likely to be willing to take on a loan at extortionate rates or indeed to buy a product that they have a particular need of at some time at an above market price.
1: And again, presumably these, these risks are, are present also elsewhere in the world and in richer countries and so on, and that's just a, a matter in a lot of cases of, of regulation, right?
3: It is, but it's hard to regulate against. So many of these mobile money services and other accounts have in effect grown up largely unregulated. So the issue now is how to spread out regulation in a way that doesn't stifle the growth of financial inclusion through the use of these services. And the Consultative Group on Action for the Poor, which is a World Bank-affiliated group, has just produced a report where it comes up with three specific recommendations. One is to accept that the so-called consumer consent model is broken. In every country, users of apps and websites routinely sign away all their rights to privacy in return just for getting onto the next screen on the, on the page. and They don't read them. So CJP this consultative group, is saying just acknowledge that consumer consent doesn't work and make the providers of these apps responsible for the protection of the data. Another proposal would be to give people a kind of digital bill of rights, which says that your data is there, it's yours, you can edit it and correct it if it's wrong, you can move it when you want to move it, and nobody can stop you doing that. And a third would be to a point of series of Privacy representatives who would have the right to look at the way these apps work and to intervene if they're seen to be unfair.
1: Do you have any hope that the push to solve this for the developing world will kind of inform uh, an eventual set of kind of best practices for all of the world?
3: That's possible, I suppose. And one common misconception is that data privacy concerns are a kind of rich world problem, that for the poor in rich countries and the poor in the developing world, it matters far less. In fact, what research has been done shows that this is a complete myth. A study in India and Kenya found that some borrowers there, very poor borrowers of microfinance loans, would be prepared to pay a higher interest rate for a loan which came with guarantees from the lender that their data would remain secure and private to that lender, or or in even more crude terms... Given a choice of queues, one very short for a loan without any data protection and a long queue with a longer wait for one with data protection, they would choose the longer queue. So as privacy concerns mount in the rich world, so they will also in the developing world. And there will presumably be consumer pressure for the types of protections we're talking about.
1: All over the world.
3: All over the world.
1: Simon, thanks very much for your time.
3: Thanks for having me, Jason.
1: High-end clothing companies generate a buzz every time they launch a new season or display their wares on the catwalk. But despite all that excitement, luxury fashion houses can struggle to actually sell their clothes. More than half of their products stay on the racks, which leaves them with a problem. What to do with all that very expensive apparel?
4: The problem of cast-offs in the fashion industry is not a new one. In fact, it happens every six months. Fashion is the ultimate seasonal business.
1: Stanley Pignol is The Economist's European business and finance correspondent.
4: At the end of each of those seasons, you have to clear the shelves. It's what's called the end-of-season problem, and it's a perennial one. They have traditionally tried to tackle in the quietest way possible, because no fashion brand ever wants to exude anything other than success. And so what they used to do is either quietly liquidate the stock to staff or friends or family, or somewhat more controversially, just simply destroy it. And the destroying it
1: does not match with the, the mood of the world of the day?
4: No, destroying is very unwoke. Burberry, the London brand, is, is the one that got into most trouble over this. A couple of years ago, it disclosed that it had destroyed something not far from 40 million dollars worth of of stock and instead of putting it on sale it was more convenient for them to burn it they claimed somewhat disingenuously i think that this was in fact sustainable because it was a way of uh, of generating energy anyway that that didn't help them with their pr strategy very much and in fact what happened is that there was such a pr kickback that some countries in Europe, uh, are making it
1: illegal to destroy good clothes. You, you say it was more convenient for them to, to burn it than to put it on sale. Why, why not simply put it on sale or, or indeed make less of the stuff in the first place?
4: Uh, well, you, you certainly don't want to make less of the stuff. A luxury product can sell for up to 10 times the cost of making it. So the first rule of fashion is don't run out of inventory. The second rule of fashion is it has to exude luxury, it has to exude exclusivity. And so if people walk into uh, luxury shops and see that they can buy stuff for 50%, 70% off, that breaks the brand. So the balance that you want to strike as a luxury brand is how much cash are you going to make by getting rid of your old stock versus how much are you going to damage your brand, which you've spent a lot of money creating by hawking your stuff cheap. And the new equilibrium seems to be that you would rather lose money than dent your brand. So Prada, for example, the, the Italian luxury group last year announced that it would no longer have any in-store sales. It would seek instead, presumably, to get rid of their stuff in, in different ways. Well, I mean, what are the different ways? If you can't burn it and you can't knock it down, then what are you supposed to do with it all? Right. So, I mean, the first thing that you try and do is you want to try and sell the stuff, but you want to sell it discreetly. So staff can usually pick up very cheap stuff, they're called sample sales, but they have nothing to do with samples. It used to be that they would send a lot of this stuff to websites. So the kind of ukes and netaportes of this world were basically ways of, of liquidating old stock. But now websites and the internet is becoming a more kind of legitimate way of selling fashion. So, so they're less keen on doing that. The, the other big one is what's called physical off-price. So you've probably come across factory outlets you now have entire malls that are factory outlets. Now, these obviously don't involve any factories. They're essentially ways of selling sort of the the least successful lines of a a Gucci or a Montclair or some other kind of big brand. The most famous one in the UK is Bicester Village. Very well done. They're outdoor malls. And you can pick stuff up for about 70% of, of high street price, but it still looks good enough that it doesn't damage the brand. And then the last one, which is really coming up, is secondhand sales. So there are a lot of uh, secondhand or clothes rental websites that are coming up on the internet. And what fashion brands are probably doing, though nobody's quite sure, is they're selling stuff that they're pretending is secondhand, but in fact is, is brand new, and they just didn't manage to sell it at, at full price to begin with.
1: And presumably that brings in some of the revenue that would otherwise go, go up in smoke. Yeah,
4: absolutely. The whole off-price segment is hard to quantify because, again, the, the luxury industry doesn't like talking about things like like discounts. But those physical off-price stores, the factory outlet malls, now account for about €40 billion euros in sales last year out of about uh, just under €300 billion in, in personal luxury sales. It's growing really fast. There's more stuff sold in, in those kinds of stores than there is on the internet. It's gone up about 85% in the last five years. The risk is that you don't want that to become your main business. It, it grows very quickly, but it doesn't have the same margins. It doesn't have the same cachet. It doesn't have the same exclusivity as full price stores. So you want to be very careful if you're a luxury brand not to cannibalize your main business just to, to grab
1: a little extra growth. Stanley, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you.